Bill and Gloria Gaither, songwriters, musicians, and gospel artists, as well as owners of Gaither's Music Company from years back, uh, penned a short little in 1970 powerful chorus based upon Acts chapter 4, verse 12, that there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And of course, that verse is talking in the context about Jesus. And this chorus can literally be recited by many established Christians because it was that powerful and that succinct. It's called, There's Something About That Name. Remember it? Jesus, Jesus. Sing it with me. Jesus, there's just something about that name, Master, Savior, Jesus, like the fragrance after the rain. Jesus, 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 let all heaven and earth proclaim. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but there's something about that name. Do you believe this? That there's something about that name? That there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved? This is the message of Christmas. This is what the Christmas story is all about. There's just something about that name. Listen to Matthew 1, verses 18 through 21. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus' name is the message of Christmas. Now, I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but our pronunciation of the Messiah's name, Christ's name, Jesus, is from Latin. That's how we say it that way, Jesus. But it comes from the translation of the Greek word in the New Testament known as Iesus. And the Greek word Iesus in the New Testament is a translation of the Old Testament Hebrew word Yeshua, meaning salvation, deliverance, God saves. Now, for the sake of illustration this morning, one of the common criticisms of Christianity as being authentic from a Muslim perspective, as not being not authentic, excuse me, from a Muslim perspective, is that the Bible is translated between so many languages, like I just shared with you. And they will argue that how trustworthy can it be, uh, or how authentic uh, does that appear when they translate from languages to languages. And to this, many good missionaries in these contexts ministering to Muslims will say, but 
If I travel to your native land, let's just say I go to Saudi Arabia or Oman or Arab Emirates or Jordan or wherever you are from, and you are my interpreter, you help me speak to others, are you trustworthy? Would your words be authentic in that case? And of course, they have to say, yeah, yeah, we, I would be saying what it is. And I, Well, yes, the Bible is written in Hebrew in the Old Testament. It's written in Greek in the New Testament with a few lines of Aramaic in both the Old and New Testaments. And yes, it is translated into many other uh, modern languages and languages throughout history. But what's so remarkable about the Bible is its complete accuracy in its depictions from thousands of years ago, from millennia to millennia, from culture to culture, from people group to people group, from language to language. It's so amazingly accurate. Jesus, that's the Latin. Iesus is the Greek. Hebrew is Yeshua. And in the English language, Yeshua is where we get the name Joshua. Don't worry, I'm not trying to blow up anybody's favorite Christmas carols or favorite choruses right now. Joshua, 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 there's just something about that name. I'm also not saying that we have to start calling Jesus Joshua. But it's important to understand the connection between Jesus and Joshua of the Old Testament and how the Israelites of the first century would have interpreted all of the events, all of the statements, all of the details about the birth of Christ in the Christmas account. See, we're looking at it 20 centuries later from our perspective, this side of the cross. They would have had a different perspective based upon uh, what words mean in their languages. Uh, they would have a different perspective and a different angle than we have. Joshua was second in command in ancient Israel behind Moses. And when Moses died outside of the promised land, it was his protege. It was his disciple. It was Joshua who led the people into the promised land. And what's equally important to grasp here today is the prophets who time and time again in the Old Testament made the connection between Yeshua, Joshua, and the Messiah that God had promised to his people. The Old Testament Joshua was a warrior. He was a commander. He was a general. And that is what these first century Israelites expected from the Messiah. Now remember, they were a subject nation. Their country was occupied by the Roman Empire. And this was, uh, you know, and this is the sixth such occupier in the last seven centuries. There were the Assyrians. There were the Babylonians. There were the Persians. There were the Greeks. There were the Syrophoenicians. And now you have the Romans. And people were tired of it. They were dreaming of a Joshua-like Messiah who would rise up and force this fierce Roman military out of their promised land. And when Jesus came along, he challenged all of their assumptions about Yeshua. As we just read in our scripture reading from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, and what James read, Pastor James read for us a few moments ago, you piece that all together, Jesus' birth was anything but triumphant. In fact, it was on the brink of being a single-parent birth, which would have been a major crisis, 
a major issue back then. And that's why you find in a few places in the Gospels, the critics of Jesus, when they really want to poke and they really want to jab at Jesus, they really want to you know, criticize and, and downplay who he is, they call him the son of Mary. That's a, basically a vulgar term. That's, that's, he's, a, he's a child of illegitimacy. That's what they want to say back then. And we have vulgar, profane terms in our culture that are similar as well. But that's what they did back then. And when Joseph discovered what appeared to be Mary's indiscretion, he was a righteous man. Now, no doubt he was older than Mary because marriages, after all, were arranged back then. And a man needed to be established to be able to pay the bride price. Now, Joseph was busy also. He was busy readying their home. And he probably didn't know Mary that well. And Mary didn't know him that well because of that difference in age. And Joseph would have probably thought to himself, I got to let her go. You know, after all these preparations, after paying the bride price, doing all this, how can I marry this girl? I'm not the responsible party. To marry her would be to shoulder some of this blame. To do so also would be to accept the shame of this out-of-wedlock conception, as well as what appeared on face value to be betrayal. How could you possibly marry somebody you do not trust? Think about that. Not, and then, because he was a righteous man, he didn't want to shame Mary. He didn't want to shame her family in their small village of Nazareth with, with just a little over 300 people. Imagine half the people we have here in the village of Poplar that's what Nazareth was, and he didn't want to shame or humiliate all them. He just wanted quietly to dismiss her, you know, end the betrothal, end the engagement, and you had to have a certificate of divorce to do that, but he just wanted to do it on the down low, do it quietly. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us about any of their interactions between Joseph and Mary when Joseph discovered her unplanned pregnancy. Mary had also been away in the hill country, uh, of Judea visiting her relative Elizabeth and her and her husband Zechariah, who shortly were to become the parents of John the Baptist, who was the one who prepared the way for Jesus. Now there was a window there, a window there for her to become pregnant by natural means, either during her time traveling there or her time staying there with her relatives. And some might have even thought that a Roman soldier perhaps had taken advantage of this young woman. And by the way, the Hebrew word Alma that we so highly value in Isaiah 7, 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The Alma, the virgin, will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. In first century, uh, these Israelites understood this as a near and contemporary fulfillment back in the eighth century. They didn't see this as some far gone fulfillment because there was a young woman, a young maiden back then who had a son, uh, you know, named, I can't even hardly say it, Malhel or Shazbaz. And uh, in, in you can read about that in, in chapter seven and eight of Isaiah. They, it was a near fulfillment. There was something that happened back then. So they weren't thinking down the road, eight centuries uh, to the coming of Jesus. And they also did not read Alma generally as virgin. It meant young maiden, young woman, newly married. And it could be a mean virgin because it also had the connotation of sexually ripe. So Joseph, knowing Mary in this classification, would not have been prone 
to be thinking along the lines of a virgin birth, but someone who had been taken advantage of as a young maiden. Now, not wanting to put words into his mouth that the Bible doesn't identify, but thinking of Joseph as being human, wouldn't you think he would probably have asked, how could you do this, Mary? How could you let this happen? You have brought shame on yourself, shame on me, shame on your family, and shame on my family. Now imagine Mary's potential response, telling Joseph that she was highly favored of the Lord, that the Holy Spirit had come upon her, and the power of the Most High had overshadowed her, and I'm pregnant with, a, with God's son. Wowza. Imagine hearing that the first time. That sounds a little bit like, you know, I'm not sure I can marry this gal. Anyway, forget the pregnancy. You know, seems like things are a little missing upstairs, you know, a little nuts. I mean, short of some insulation. I'm not sure both oars are in the water here. You know, she thinks she's pregnant because of God. And of course, shortly, the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and he straightens this entire matter out and he marries Mary. But here's the point I want you to understand. That in the first century, no one expected the Messiah to be born of a virgin. So for Matthew to have made up that detail doesn't help his storyline at all. In fact, it actually works against the, uh, the storyline here. The only reason that detail is included in the birth narrative of Christ is because it's true. And for emphasis, let me mention, the early church at first didn't rally around the virgin birth either. They rallied around the resurrection. They were so stunned by the resurrection that they rallied around that. It was only later that they came to realize as they pieced everything together the significance of the virgin birth. Now the angel of the Lord came to both Joseph and Mary and told them their son was special. Holy Spirit conceived, and you will call him Jesus, Yeshua. Joshua, the long-awaited warrior, commander, prophet, priest, and king, who would save his people. And Joseph, like every other faithful Jew, I'm convinced of that time frame, hoped that the Messiah would save them and his people and Israel from the oppressive hand of the Romans. And instead, the angel said something very different. He will save his people from their sins. Are we any different than these first century Israelites? Don't we long to be delivered from the oppressive hand of this dysfunctional, fallen world? Especially now, since COVID-19 has completely derailed our world and it's completely derailed our lives. You know, think about it. Government lockdowns, executive orders. Follow the science. What science? They're going to have to study this stuff for years. Whose science are we supposed to follow? And if you're not following the science, then you are willingly killing people. Then there's the shutting down of our economy by all kinds of people who get to keep their paychecks and keep their pensions and keep their health insurance and all of that because they feed at the public trough. And then there's this disparity between these blue states and red states and how severe or how minimal the lockdowns are. And then we see people turning on each other, treating each other as if they're the enemy because they happen to view things 
differently to the point where COVID is no longer the enemy. People are. And in this highly polarized society that's now supercharged to the nth degree by politics and COVID itself, oh God, save us, deliver us, Yeshua, Jesus, save us. And what's God's response to all this? He will save his people from their sins. That's God's response. That's the Christmas response. And we're good at seeing other sins, but we're not so good at seeing our own. Or how offensive some of our views may be to others. It's easy to just see people as the enemy, and it's easier to see their sins than our own and see people as the enemy because we disagree with them. This was not what the ancient world was looking for. This was not the image of the Messiah that Israel had in mind. They were not looking for someone to save them from their sins. They didn't think that they needed that. After all, they had a religious system for that. They had the law. They had a way for making restitution for sin. What they wanted was to be saved from the Romans or like us, to be saved from COVID or saved from socialism, or progressivism, or patriotism, or leftism, or right-wingism, or secularism, or humanism, or racism, or classism, or elitism, or fundamentalism, or constitutionalism, or sexism, or you provide the ism. We're not a whole lot different, are we? The notion of being saved from our sins doesn't move many of us a whole lot. Most of us Don't fall on our knees in repentance when we hear that God sent his son to save us from our sins. And the reason for this is we think we're pretty good people. We're not the ones going around terrorizing people, burning down their businesses and looting. We're not the ones who are the partiers. You know, we don't, you know, drink, smoke, or chew or go out with girls that do. You know, we're not the ones who are the cheaters and the liars and the murderers and the thieves. We're we're, we're pretty good people. Our problem is we don't think of Jesus as saving us from our sins. We tend to only think of Jesus as forgiving our sins. After all, nobody's perfect. We all flub up. We all sin. We all make mistakes. But God forgives. Let me say this. If you've reduced the gospel and Christmas for that matter to forgiveness alone, you have missed the message of Christmas. In this life, Jesus didn't come so that we could be delivered strictly from the consequences of sin. The truth is in this world, we have to face the consequences of our sin. If we neglect our bodies, if we neglect our health, if we neglect our relationships, if we neglect our responsibilities, guess what? We're gonna face the music. We're gonna face the consequences. We do not get a pass on failure. We don't get a pass on fine. Sorry, officer, I know I was speeding, but I'm saved and Jesus forgives me my sins. We don't get a pass on that. We don't get a pass on the loss of respect. We reap what we sow in this life. Jesus, Yeshua, in the spirit of Joshua, the warrior, the Messiah, came to deliver us from the power of sin for eternity and in the here and now. This is why time and time again, Jesus, when he called people to himself in the Gospels, he called them to leave their lives of sins and come follow me. John chapter 10, verse 10 highlights this very well. The thief comes only 
to kill, steal, and destroy. That's the life of sin. That's the life of the evil and the enemy. He wants you to be in that world. That's the life that the world has to offer you. But he says, I have come that you might have life and have life to the full. Here's what the Apostle Paul said about this very thing in Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 14. In the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. This is the message of Christmas. You see, there's something about that name. We're going to sing that again. Please join me. Jesus, 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 there's just something about that name. Master, Savior, Jesus, like the fragrance after the rain. Jesus, 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 let all heaven and earth proclaim. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but there's something about that name. Please join me in prayer. God, our Father, thank you for this important reminder on this third Sunday of Advent of the message of Christmas, the name Jesus. How significant, God, that he would come to save his people from their sins. God, forgive us for our misunderstanding or downplaying of what this truly means. Forgive us, God, for these times that we're going around treating each other as the enemy because we have different views on COVID or politics or what's going on in society or whatever, God. Our sins are rampant, they're evident, and God, we thank you for your forgiveness. But God, help us to recognize that that's all that you came to save us from, the power of sin, the influence of sin in our lives, from it ruling over our, our bodies and our, and, our, and our thoughts. God, that's a powerful story, powerful message. Thank you so much for Jesus. There's truly something about that name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.